I think we just need to be continuously learning in this space because what we are ultimately trying to do is a challenge about culture we live in and how we can contribute to a world where consent is the norm. Welcome to the One Up Project. Money is fuel that, that allows you to do things. It doesn't need to be taboo. What you don't want to do is wake up at 65 realising you did something you hated and have regret. Go and find people who will give you advice for nothing. This is a space for personal growth and money chat with new perspectives every Monday. This bit of content listening to this is going to be a small little breadcrumb of something that makes them think a little bit differently. For all the things we were never taught but should have been. At the end of the day, the most important person is yourself and if you're not happy with your own choices, then you're never going to be happy. Kia ora everyone and welcome back to another episode of the One Up Project podcast. Today on the pod we have a really great friend of mine, lovely human all round, Jenna Hawkins-Bolton. She's the director and founder of Let's Talk Consent, which is a digital media and consultancy agency. They're a safe online community to empower young New Zealanders to challenge the dominance of rape culture through their efforts to educate and change attitudes around Aotearoa's normalised rape culture, they aspire to catalyse long-term behavioural and systemic change to tackle Aotearoa's sexual violence epidemic. Jenna is also an associate at the YWCA who works to nurture young women's leadership and amplify their experiences and voices, a programme and a company that I have been well-versed with this year being a part of their Y25 cohort. Jenna is a truly empathetic and purposeful leader in her space and it was a real privilege to have her on the podcast for this corridor. Themes within today's episode are identity and Jenna's struggle with her own identity, rewriting a personal narrative of trauma, abuse and paving a path for compulsory consent education in Aotearoa through Let's Talk Consent, which I just spoke about briefly. So much of what we go into today is a vulnerable and authentic and transparent reflection of Jenna's journey, both healing herself and I suppose using her own experience to help heal others as well. So if any of those topics are potentially triggering or unhelpful to the season you're currently in, feel free to skip this episode. If you are ready, willing and able to listen to this, I hope that you enjoy it and I very much look forward to hearing all of your thoughts soon on Instagram. Make sure to follow and support Jenna by going to at Let's Talk Consent NZ on Instagram and also check out the website letstalkconsent.co.nz. If you're in high school, speak to your teachers about this. If you're in a workplace, speak to your colleagues about this. Uh, Let's get consent education supported in all spaces that we're in. All right, let's get into it. Hi, Jenna. I'm such a fan of yours and we've only met in the last year or so have we yes like literally yeah, this year, year was it yeah back in was it June yeah it feels like so much longer I was just thinking before I jumped onto the call that I know you as this kind-hearted person who just has so much love and warmth to give to give to other people um, which makes it feel like I've known you for so much longer and why I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast today to talk to you so thank you for being here Oh, thank you so much. I am such a fan of One Up as well. Like I completely share the same sentiments of just knowing you as this kind-hearted, beautiful person who just creates such a safe space for people to really, yeah, shine in their authentic selves. And I love all the money advice you give. You've helped me so much. And so, yeah, I'm just really happy to be here. 
Oh, massive compliment. Thank you. Um, I think that often the work that we do is inspired by other people in our lives. And I have read uh, with your story that your kuia or your grandma, your nana, is your biggest inspiration within the mahi that you do. And I, I'm keen to know from your perspective what she represents within your journey. Oh, yeah, she is such a phenomenal woman. Um, she completely embodies the beauty and brown excellence. And she, I think, because I am Māori and I'm very fair, I'm a very fair Māori. And so I went through my, I go through my life with people not understanding that I'm Māori and she never made me feel like I didn't belong um, in my whānau and I think that she really just paved such a beautiful path of empowerment and grace and love because that's everything that she poured into me and my mum and my whānau and she has been such a a, or she's unfortunately she is in the late stages of dementia now but I have so many beautiful memories of her when I was growing up and she just raised me and my family to just love each other and to also honor ourselves as knowing who we are and just living with such um just kind of owning our power in a way yeah I feel like I could ramble on and on on about how much she means to me and I I always get so emotional because she is such an important person to me in the way I connect to my own whakapapa and the way I um, understand my own connection to te ao Māori as well. Mm, I can absolutely see how you embody that legacy in so many ways as well and I think it's beautiful that you have that relationship and someone in your life who you can look to as that mentor, that giant in your life and has always made you feel like you belong. I think people believing in you, instilling that confidence that you belong in this world is a really special trait and a special gift that we can give to other people. Um, You made a comment that she has never made you feel like you don't belong, which leads me to think that there have may have been some experiences in your life that have made you feel like you don't belong and so coming to terms with what you see as your personal identity sounds like it would have been quite difficult yeah I that was it, it's always been a challenge understanding my identity my cultural identity uh so I fuckapapped to both um Taranaki so Aotearoa and also to Ukraine and Australia and growing up there was a lot of internalized racism from side of my family that obviously wasn't my Maori side um, who would try to tell me that kind of try to instill these quite harmful stereotypes of Maori into me from a very young age um, a lot of that was talking about how um, I ultimately sh- shouldn't embrace my Maori side because the typical stereotype of the Maori, they ra- they they're raised in the benefit, they leech off um, government funding, they are lazy, and like all these horrible stereotypes that I was raised with. And um, but I would go to spend time with my Maori whānau, and I would get nothing but love and acceptance, and like just pure 
um, empowerment and I would get really confused so I think well I've been trying I've been instilled in so much of the shame of my Māori side and being told like I don't look Māori I can't speak te reo um so why why am I claiming why am I why am I saying telling myself or telling everyone that I'm Māori um and so that has been a very difficult journey for me to be able to reconcile with those um feelings of not being like I belong into my Māori side and but I think growing up people try to make me feel ashamed of it of my Māori side but living as I am now it is the thing that I am most proud of I am so proud to be Māori and I think there's so many beautiful values in te ao Māori that I really try to embody in every day like manakitanga and um in just pure aroha for my family and I just look back and wore that struggle of identity that I had when I was younger and I just feel I feel so sad for my younger self of yeah feeling like I couldn't stand up and be like yeah I am a power Māori um yeah so it's quite a quite a difficult journey to really um articulate as well because it also came from people I would go to school where like they'd be like you're not Māori you're white like what are you talking about and so yeah it's very common I think and um the more I guess what's it called the more urban Māori community is when we are displaced from our marae and our iwi we get a lot of um ostracization or pushback from others who don't really believe that we do belong to our community. Thank you for sharing because I can absolutely imagine how difficult of an internal conflict that is with all the external influences happening and also something that although you have such a beautiful way of articulating it now I'm sure it's an ongoing journey where every day you're learning something new or have a new lens on what you've been through, what you're going through, how you sort of decipher what you believe to be true about who you are. Um, And that topic of identity can be really complicated because not only do you feel like you are a combination of different things, everyone is a combination of so many different layers within those things as well. Like, and it's quite hard to share that journey with other people when it is so personal to you. Um, and it takes a lot of courage, I think, to go on that journey at all, especially when you have been told all of these negative, harmful things through growing up and these versions of truth that now you don't identify with. Like, have you felt that need to be brave? How has that courage had to play a part in in your journey so far? Yeah, because I think with the type of work that I do, it's like your lived experience and your authentic self is so deeply embedded in every part of your mahi, whether it's empowering young people, whether it's an advocacy, you have to really know yourself and where you belong and what you stand for. And I think that does take a lot of courage in terms of like, really overcoming intergenerational colonization and just that internalized push like rejection of your community 
and having to overcome that and really embrace and accept who you are and where you have come from is so deeply important into the work that and how you serve your community. It does make me wonder, as you mentioned, through the work that you do now, which we're going to touch on and get into soon, how we can better embrace our authentic experience to sort of help ourselves heal from that maybe, but then also help others as well. Like how have you gone on that journey to embrace what is your authentic lived experience? The way I do it is that I look back and I understand my childhood, my experience with different forms of abuse and the way, what environment I grew up in. I look to that and I think, what would my younger self need in that moment? And I think what I, how I carry myself now, I really try to be that person, that empowered, courageous person that my younger self would have needed to advocate for her. Um, And so I really try to, I guess, like rewrite the narrative of my lived experience. And so I can look back and I think, I can look back on the different forms of violence that I grew up around and the different, um, yeah, racism that I encountered. And I think, how can I rewrite the narrative? How can I change the legacy that I'm leaving? And a lot of that is understanding that I guess my trauma can be reimagined as a superpower in the way that I can advocate for myself and others and serve my community. Mm. Well, that was really like beautifully put, honestly. Like that was just such a nice, um, well, I don't even know if nice is the right word. It was just a really inspiring and encouraging and empowering description of what you've managed to do and how other people can do that as well. And I think you've perfectly described what it means to be an empowered person when you say to rewrite the narrative of of your lived experience. And I think that's just such a beautiful phrase. Thinking about the work you do now with Let's Talk Consent and we'll get into like what exactly Let's Talk Consent is, how have you rewritten the narrative of your lived experience through this passion project of yours? Well, yeah, Let's Talk Consent was honestly born out of a very rough time in my life. So it was, it came about mid last year and that was, I had basically hit rock bottom at that point. And it was like, okay, I am like, yeah, I am mentally, I am at rock bottom. I have no direction in my life. I feel like deeply disconnected from everyone in my life. And I thought, you know what, (laughs) if there's any time to do this, to take a leap and to really stand tall in my power is to be, is right now. Because I always think at rock bottom, there's only way, there's only one way up. There's only, it's like I laugh now because it's like coping with like, (laughs) looking back, I'm like, okay, I have to like look at this in a comedic like lens. But like, I was at the point in my life where I was like, the only way is up right now 
it can't get any worse than this. I might as well just give it a go. Um, and so, yeah, last year um, I had a multiple traumatic experiences that I had been um, brought up in my life. Um, and I just thought I needed to take charge of my life. I was feeling all the yeah, pain and frustration. I looked over to Australia and I saw a young woman named Chanel Contos. I think she was yeah, about the same age as I am. And she had completely flipped Australia on us upside down and basically exposed the rape culture that was happening and all the horrible experiences of high school students. And I was watching that campaign and I thought, oh my gosh, like this is exactly all the pain and frustration and the helplessness that I'm feeling now. And she has completely just taken all that and gone on this beautiful path of advocacy. And she, and then she, founded Teachers Consent and Teachers Consent was able to make consent education mandatory in Australia and so I looked to what advocacy she was doing and I thought why don't I just try that here (laughs) it was completely delusional I was like yeah you know I don't I haven't seen any consent education campaigns here I'm sure they're out there but I might as well just try and so I put a call out on my Instagram for testimonies and I basically just point blank I just exposed the epidemic of sexual violence that was within our young people and I was basically like hey if you have had bad experiences with consent education in high school if you're willing to share your experience of um, sexual violence with, with me here's a anonymous platform for you to share those experiences I'm going to take these experiences to MPs across Auckland and I'm going to campaign for consent education to be compulsory and I went into this without knowing anything about the education system I was honestly just acting on passion and impulse and it ended up blowing up into something so much bigger um it got the attention of like news outlets and so I was like doing my first interviews and stuff it got picked up by Teachers Consent in Australia as well and so they offered to host testimonies on their website as well so that's where all the big numbers were coming in and so at the end of it I had this testimony pool of 300 across the country and I was basically like what on earth do I do with this and so I sat with those 300 testimonies and I read them front to back like I was just constantly just sitting there trying to absorb honestly it was like shocking the amount of detail it went into and it was the amount of trauma and the horrific experiences and I would just sit there like laying awake at night and I was like what could possibly happen with these testimonies because I'm taking them to MPs they're kind of saying the same thing like oh yeah we think consent education is important it's hard to make them compulsory because of xyz like parents and stuff and so I felt completely hopeless and then from reading the testimonies I really saw that there was a disconnect between young people between schools, between politicians, between the government on how 
people actually understand what sexual violence is and how to go how to navigate the prevention side and I felt like youth voices in particular were completely like drained out of the conversations and so that's where Let's Talk Consent comes in (laughs) because I looked at all those stories and I thought wouldn't it be amazing if we could take these stories and we could really create something beautiful out of them to kind of create the conversations of what sexual violence in young people, what what it's like and how do we protect our young people? How do we create a culture of consent? Because at the moment we live in a complete culture where sexual violence is normalised. So the initial idea was that I wanted to create a production company because my background is in film and I wanted to create a production company for youth voices around sexual violence to be heard and for these hard-hitting conversations to have and then we I applied for this entrepreneurship program and entrepreneurship program came with mentorship and my mentors were like well this can be so much bigger And so it ultimately blew up into what is now the, what is now the growth of a social impact organization that works with both schools and hopefully businesses to create a culture of consent. I just want to know, how have you reconciled with the huge impact you've managed to have initiate help bring access to in such a short amount of time I feel like that's something that almost never gets reconciled because it's a feeling that is so overwhelming you're like okay a year ago I was in the I was in the trenches a year ago and now all of this impact has happened like I'm meeting with ministry education every month I'm having these conversations with teachers and different communities It's like, how could I possibly have gone from literally never being able to leave my bed to now having these really hard-hitting, tough conversations? I don't understand. (laughs) It just kind of, it just, it felt like it did happen overnight. It's been over a year now, but it's definitely something that I struggle to to understand on the daily. Mm. It's amazing because you've (laughs) done exactly what you've said which was probably unintentional at the time rewriting the narrative of your lived experience to not only help I'm sure heal yourself in many ways but bring forward the the voices the vulnerable stories of so many other people as well and I just think that is one of the most incredible things um and I don't know how to congratulate you without using a term so uh, flippant is that the word I'm looking for is congratulations because it's it, it needs like a a feeling of just like wow that's amazing um sent your way and I just think everything you do is obviously incredible but it really shows the impact that having passion um can have and you used a word earlier when you were starting the story which was completely delusional you said I'm completely delusional and in my head I was like absolutely not that is if anything the most sensible thing you could have done it made complete sense you saw something that wasn't happening in your own community and you made a change and I think if more people could 
enact that, like live that, um, we'd see some really positive changes happening in our communities everywhere. So I, I think it was anything but delusional. And I definitely, I think, can resonate with, from my experience, using that passion and that purpose uh, to create change in any area is one of the most transformational strengths you can have because you said you're working off this passion and this impulse which I'm sure led to maybe burnout or stress or overwhelm or all these negative emotions um, which those are to be acknowledged as well Um, and on the other side of that you've completely transformed an area that previously didn't exist at all and I have this question that often comes up when I in my own head when I speak to people but I've found it quite hard to articulate in the past I'm going to give it a go and you can let me know if it makes sense but what do you think the difference is between using that trauma and pain as power and purpose or using that trauma and pain as the thing that completely destroys you forever that is such a great question because that is something I've been grappling with literally since I started because it's like, yeah, on one hand, I have written the legacy of my, of, I've had, on one hand, I have written, rewritten the, my trauma, the narrative of my trauma. And the other hand, I have walked in a very tight string between making this trauma my identity and making it my superpower. And so that is a very tough line to walk down. And it has, I think I'm always on that journey to try prevent myself from flipping over to that side of making the trauma an all-encompassing experience of being my identity. And that has come with a lot of internal work, a lot of therapy as well. I think it's also important for me to acknowledge my privilege of access to therapy um I don't it is covered by um ACC so I don't have to fork out that hefty fee each time but it's a lot of internal training of being like this trauma is something that I can utilize in some ways it does not have to bleed into other aspects of my life so in terms of like my social life, my personal life, my dating life, it's very tough to make sure that my trauma is like, it's almost like it's almost exclusively activated, not activated, but exclusively empowered or um, utilized to create that connections with other survivors in my work and my advocacy does not come into my social life or my dating life or my family life because my dating life my family life my personal life that operates from a person of a space of joy and love and in like joy in a different way love in a different way empowerment in a different way and so it's a really good question because I think it's very easy to lose yourself in the trauma and to make that something that destroys you when it can be something that takes a lot of work to make sure that it can empower you. I use that term empower in a very careful way because I don't want to 
like normalize the trauma in a way I don't want to like say that you know if I wasn't traumatized and I I wouldn't be empowered you know and so it's like using the term empower in a very careful way in the way that it doesn't I guess yeah normalize the experience I'm sure it could so often become really overwhelming as well I mean not only are you still I'm sure in many ways healing from your own experiences but also being that voice for so many other people and in rooms with powerful people let's say in air quotes being a representative for their voices as well is learning how to manage I suppose or have compassion for yourself through that being quite a difficult and almost spontaneous part of the journey because you weren't anticipating this to I don't don't think it seems to be as huge as it was so suddenly not only are you thrusted into this new opportunity but you have this entirely new responsibility that I'm sure bears quite a bit of weight on your shoulders yeah it I think because I always link this back to being a big sister um because I felt like in my childhood I was always advocating for myself and my little sister I was always advocating for our safety and like our strength and so it feels like a lot of that has been training for this type of work and to be this voice um for the people that trusted their stories with me and so it does feel like a weight on my shoulders from time to time but then I just kind of go back I'm like look I I have I'm doing this because my younger self I I couldn't advocate for my younger self at times and I feel like now I'm in a very privileged position to be um, supported by my family and my friends and to have that access to therapy that I am in a position where I can at times handle the pressure of advocating for the voiceless with that knowledge that I was the voiceless at some point in my life. But I also do have to navigate that very carefully in the way that I don't take on too much, which is very hard for me because I want to do it all. And that leads to burnout and that leads to me not being a help at all. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a tough journey and it's taken, I feel like I'm at a good place now at the start of it I definitely was not looking after myself because I wanted that big sister was advocate was activated that big sister wanted to look after every single person that trusted me and to be a voice for all of them and so I really have to navigate that uh, very carefully and with compassion for myself as well Mm. I think it's one of the hardest skills for a lot of people to learn is how to have that compassion for yourself because so often you you're almost taught through various experiences that you don't need to and you can thrive more by just putting that pressure on yourself to just get through it to just survive there isn't really often that element of compassion can help you thrive let's say just beyond getting through something And it almost does have to be this learnt behaviour of like, 
okay, the way I feel is okay. We're moving through this slowly. That's fine. Um, and it can be a, a journey. It doesn't have to be like a, you've been through this, right? What's the solution? Go kind of thing, which is, I feel like something we can all relate to in terms of how we approach really intense or traumatic things in our lives as well. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's hard to do this type of work when all you want to do is serve your community, but you have to serve yourself first. Mm. And I think that's something that, yeah, parts, I think my family, my mom, like I think about back to my mom and my queer, my nana, um, it was always put others ahead of yourself. And so having to look into that feeling, that instinct of wanting to put my trauma aside and to look after others has been difficult to, I guess, rewire in my head. And like, I can't, I have to have compassion and love for myself to have compassion and love for others. Yeah, it's Mm. a, it's a journey. It is. It is. And do you find yourself now, you know, still often having to remind yourself of that? Yeah. And I think so much of that does come from a trauma, a place of trauma too, because it's like that neglect of yourself and your autonomy and your Mm -hmm. protection because that has happened and that's what triggered that sort of came with the trauma it's hard to look at that um, as a way it's hard to understand that in your work because you you know in your head you're like oh well I'm actually like investing all my time into helping others and then in the day you're kind of like oh my gosh I feel so triggered right now I I feel like Mm. everything all my nervous system is is going crazy um and so you have to think okay well part of my advocacy for myself is actually like live is, is part of having love for myself and having and investing in my safety and my own well-being because that was taken away with the trauma you know so it's just like it is a tough thing to navigate while having to understand the trauma of others like reading other stories and stuff and understanding how that works while you're almost like disconnected from your own trauma. Okay, I'm so focused on their story, but what's my story? Like, what's mm-hmm. my experience? And so that has, again, been a very difficult journey to navigate. And I don't think that's really talked about enough in this type of advocacy because you're so much of your your credibility, your like social capital is like, placed on service for other people and how you advocate for others and so you kind of have to like flip that sometimes and at the end of the day you have to think about how are you advocating for yourself so much must happen in your mind as you're reading one other person's story in amongst doing all of this advocacy work as well because talking about something in your work that often 
isn't spoken about publicly and people struggle to share those um, experiences understandably, you I'm sure at the same time would be learning about new things that maybe you hadn't even experienced or didn't understand or and and that's also something in itself to reconcile and and deal with as you're also advocating for yourself in that same space. I am interested to hear from your perspective what through this experience what some of the more striking revelations have been that have really continued to push your passion for consent education um, and addressing sexual violence. I think the most shocking thing that really came out of the testimonies was like the spectrum of sexual violence because it did go from um, experiences of harassment and like groping and online stalking and online harassment of like through snapchats and like new pictures and stuff and then it would get to okay, intimate partner violence so um experience of violence in a relationship where they couldn't identify what they were experiencing was assault or was rape and then it would get into the more sinister horrific violent experiences of like pack assault of like physical restraint and um, strangulation and so it really did expose the culture that we live of sexual violence we live in New Zealand because it can go from something as little as well perceptively little as a rape joke or harassment or or yeah assault in the form of like groping someone to the very horrific violent experiences and so we really need to look at the spectrum of sexual violence and how that can be I guess um perpetrated from like the bottom level of harassment and can get to the more like it's like a pyramid of violence right so it goes from sexual harassment and it escalates to the more horrific experiences such as like pack assault and the more violent forms of abuse too um and then we think about consent education i think consent education is a very tough topic for people to understand because it is understood that consent education can't prevent all forms of sexual violence and I, I completely agree with that I think what we what I think about when I talk about consent education is a form of perpetrator called the entitled opportunistic rapist so that is a form of perpetrator that we often don't talk about so when we talk about sexual violence is there's a more sinister aggressive violent type so the entitled opportunistic rapist, um, which is, I think, where consent education is really important, is trying to, what consent education is trying to do is trying to rewrite or rewire our cultural understanding of entitlement, where I think a lot of sexual violence is perpetrated from, is from a place of entitlement, is a place of lack of empathy of the other person. And so what consent education is, I envision it trying to do, is to promote a culture where consent is the norm as opposed to sexual violence being the norm. I hope that makes sense. I can understand that there's so many layers to this as well. Like yeah. talking about consent education, I'm sure is not never going to be as simple as just being able to explain in a one sentence um, elevator yeah. pitch, yep, this is what it is and why it's so valuable to society. There's obviously so many layers 
to consent education to assault to sexual violence to trauma in general um and it's not a simple answer and it's not a simple solution and it doesn't need to be I really don't believe that we live in a black and white world I believe we live in a gray world and so every experience should be isolated to be important and unpacked um, to have all the layers seen and and valued as we would in any other situation and I think something you touch on that's really really important um, and has raised a lot of I guess just thoughts for me uh, in my own journey is that as a society we often can value one person's experience over another's and something you have touched on in the past is around what sounds like people's or you know survivors of uh, assault or, or violence their experiences being diluted for the sake of bias um, around the other person's experience or situation and us maybe most of the time subconsciously I'm sure unintentionally but still valuing someone's experience over another's for the sake of how yeah we perceive a situation so like people tend to apply their own lived experience onto another person rather than just authentically listening and hearing that person out for what is their their experience in that moment and I think in relation to consent education doing that and not being aware that we as a society can do that is really dangerous that really came into play in so many other testimonies too where someone who was reported for perpetrating sexual violence against another student was offered leadership positions and so we that really comes into question of what culture we are creating where someone's future is prioritized over another's mm. and we have to look at it from the top-down approach so who is who are in these positions of power who are making the laws who are setting the narratives and the media and who is ultimately in charge of or who is ultimately creating these standards of behavior and I look at the, the, the stories of these young people these survivors sitting in assemblies right and like looking on the stage and seeing the person who abused them and being awarded um leadership positions scholarships and they're sitting there and they're sitting with their trauma and they are looking at what is ultimately rape culture coming to life where they their experience has been swept under the rug it hasn't been there's been no accountability they are left with their trauma and to basically deal with it on their own. Well, you know, get a therapist or talk to their family. While the person who had hurt them is now on a path to what we can only imagine to be a successful future. And that is a hard-hitting fact that we need to start thinking about, especially in schools. 
And that's where consent education, where accountability, where response, prevention policies come into play. Absolutely. I can't even imagine having my experience publicly invalidated right in front of my eyes and then being given almost no support to one deal with that but also no support at the start to be shown any respect for what I've openly and vulnerably said to someone knowing that it was probably one of the most difficult things that they had to do yeah I I was reading those stories and I just thought how did we get to this point and it is can it be helped with disclosure training partially yes I think ultimately we need like a cultural transformation with how we understand sexual violence and I am so ambitious Mm -hmm. with that but I think that's ultimately what we need need to be having these conversations and it's like of course like you no one could ever imagine what that would be like to have your uh, such a horrible experience being validated right in front of your eyes and it's that's why it's like we need more survivor-centric policies but also flipping that and being like it's we need to think about who is perpetrating the violence, not as who is um, experiencing mm. the violence. And I think mm. that is a narrative that we need to constantly be challenging. It's like, who is doing this? Who is conducting this? Like, who is conducting this behavior? Not like, obviously, mm. we need to think about the survivor and think about it in very survivor centric ways, but thinking in a survivor centric way is holding the perp- perp- perpetrator in, this, in question here and thinking mm. about. How do they get to that point? How do they think that it was okay? Who validated that? What path are they now on? And thinking about those hard-hitting questions because that is a narrative or that is a conversation that often gets lost in how we talk about sexual violence in this country. Definitely. And I think it's a really important lesson that all of us can take from this uh, conversation with you, Jenna. I... To summarise, I suppose, not that you could ever summarise such a huge, um, hugely important topic, but I guess to come to the end of this episode for now, this conversation, which I look forward to continuing on by reading the books you've suggested as well. And I'll pop them below for anyone interested because I think it's going to be really valuable for us to continue to learn. On an individual level, like what action can we take as people to not continue to contribute to a world where these things, where sexual violence is normalised and people aren't being held accountable or learning or changing? I think we just need to be continuously learning in this space because what we are ultimately trying to do is challenge the rape culture we live in. And so that's going to look differently for each person. But for me, what I would advise is to just be quite observant of, I guess, your own dialogue um, and how you might be, I guess, validating certain experiences. But I think as well, what has helped me is basically looking back at the experiences I've had and how they might have been normalised and how we can contribute to a world where consent is the norm. And so it's like, respecting your autonomy, respecting others' autonomy of their own bodies and to be, I guess, like really active bystanders. And being an active bystander involves a lot of 
empathy and compassion and also education how to approach these sort of conversations and so I guess the ultimate takeaway I would say is this education um Consent Laid Bear by Chanel Contos is an amazing resource that I've been it's a it's a book that she has released recently it's been an awesome resource for understanding the rape culture at a very like deep and visceral level so that we can dismantle it um yeah very useful and as you said there's a huge layer of intersectionality where it's going to be different within each culture and each situation and we need to be important of that as well which I suppose ties into Mm. everything that you're saying which is continuously learning staying um as an active bystander and constantly trying your best to be as aware and as empathetic as you can of lived experiences that you may not share as well so thank you Jenna for your time for sharing I really really appreciate everything you do but especially your vulnerability and your willingness to come on here and offer up everything that you've learnt and and been through for us to learn from as well um you're an incredible woman and I can't wait to see what you continue to do oh huge mihi to you as well Sarah like I think I've told this I've said this to you multiple times in person but you just have such a beautiful way of being such an amazing active listener and to create such a beautiful space for people to be vulnerable and to trust you. And I think that is an absolute testament to who you are as a person and your amazing heart work. And yeah, so big mihi to you too, Sarah. Thank you. Oh, don't make the tears flow, Jenna. (laughs) Don't make the tears flow. But I really appreciate that, honestly. Thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The One Up Project. If you want to find more stuff just like this, check out our other apps or follow us at The One Up Project on Instagram or TikTok. See you there.